Yo, what's up, Renaissance? Yes. Hey, good to be here. Good to see you this morning. I'm going to start in Aswan fashion. I got a question. How many of us, raise your hand, if you desire to grow? Raise your hand if you desire to grow. Now, pause. I'm going to put that right here. Some of you looked at how tall I was, and you're like, did you ask yourself that question? I, let's get that out the way, right? Okay. But how many of us desire to grow, right, in some aspect of our life? We all desire to grow. In fact, you are here this morning because there is a desire to grow in your relationship with God. And we all have a desire to grow in some form or fashion. Here's what I want to say about growth and spiritual growth as we move into our growing up um, uh, sermon series, growth doesn't just happen. Growth isn't something that just happens arbitrarily. It's something you actually have to work at, something you have to put time into. I think about my career as a basketball player and, and my skill developed over time, not just because I sat around and did nothing, but because I put in work. I developed a left hand and a smooth crossover and a little, uh, let me not talk about it. But also, uh, what I want to say, here's another truth. Yes, we all want to grow, but we grow in community. We grow in community in some ways. For all of us, I think God designed it that way, that we would benefit from the person next to us or some the people around us. And again, I know there could be ideas around community and who we're hanging around with and those type of things, but we all grow in community. I needed people to help show me things that I couldn't see on my own. I need people to help give me another perspective about a situation or circumstance so I don't just become a prisoner to my own. I need people to help uh, shape my tone and how I talk and, and give me a, a, a viewpoint that maybe I would have missed because of things I wasn't exposed to or education that I necessarily didn't have. We all want to grow, and we grow in community. <laughs> but before I get into this kind of deep conversation and before we have this discussion this morning, I think there are some misunderstandings about community. When I said we all grow in community or when I used the word community, many of you had different feelings. Maybe subtly you had a different reaction, but we all have kind of this different perspective about community. But I think there's this overarching common misunderstanding about community. Here it is. Most of the time, when we think about community, we're thinking about what we can get. See, the challenge of community is that we use it to scratch an itch. Ouch. Think about it this way. Maybe there are some social insecurities you have, and you see community as a way to go and have those insecurities and those needs filled. And I would say that's a dangerous place for us to be. But one common misunderstanding about community, the biggest one in my mind, at least for me, is that we use it to scratch an itch. 
The paradigm that we use when we go into community is this. What can I get? And when that becomes the premise and the foundation for how we're seeking out community, we're only destined to hurt people or hurt ourselves. Um, Most of you know I work with an organization called Young Life, right? The mission of Young Life is to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. So we work in the adolescent world. What a world it is. And we kind of pride ourselves on embedding ourselves as staff and volunteers who are able to tiptoe into the adolescent world and earn the right, we say, to introduce them to Christ. So every year as an organization, we welcome um, our new staff, maybe 200 to 300 new staff members who say, I am going to make this my vocation. I am going to choose to step into the world of adolescence as my job. I pray for them. But I was recently at our new staff conference, and I was teaching a class, and one of the things I like to share with our new staff is this. Deal with your junk first. Deal with you first, because if you come to this adolescent world uh, with this void that you weren't cool as a teenager, and now you're going to be this super cool adult, you're going to wear your hat backwards, you're going to wear jeans that you can't fit, sneakers you don't even know the name of, right? If you're going to try to step into this world with a crack in the bottle, you're really going to damage some people. And I think community, when we think about community, one of our greatest ills is that we come to community with a crack in the bottle. And we're hoping that all the things that we have going on in era, that community is going to fix. And you might be saying, okay, Aswan, uh, but, but how do I know that? I don't really think that's me, but, but how would I know? Here's how you would know. Here's a little test. What do you do when the community you're in chooses to do something you don't like? What happens when they move in a direction that you're not, you're kind of like, it doesn't really scratch the itch that I was looking for? Do you submit to that community? Do you fall back in line or do you break out? That's right. Yeah, somebody said break out. I feel you. I'm out of there. But I would offer the question then, Are you using community to scratch an itch? Here's what happens ultimately when that's your paradigm. When you have a self-seeking paradigm of community, what generally happens is you get burnt out, you get tired of being committed and sacrificing things, and you ultimately walk away saying community is not good. Community is not real. But I submit to you, it's one thing to reject community for what it is, but it's another thing to reject community for what it's not. And many of us have rejected community not knowing actually what it truly is. My scripture this morning um, is is one that I think will help and give us some deeper understanding about community. And here's why I chose this scripture, because I really believe community is too important to misunderstand. Community is too important to God to misunderstand. It's found, my scripture this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 
4 through 10. And just to give us a little framework, Peter, one of the dudes that was really running with Jesus, who denied him, and then uh, after, saw, after seeing him resurrected, became, you know, the, one of the biggest advocates that the world will ever know for, for, for the reality of Jesus living, dying, and rising again. Peter, in his letter, he's writing to a bunch of Christians, and they're all now in fear because at this time when he's writing, there's a Roman emperor who's making sure that, well, Rome is actually collapsing as a a people group, as a people nation, as 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 an empire, and this Roman emperor is choosing to use Christians as the reason that's happening. So it's a full onslaught, like, yo, anytime you see a Christian person, kill them. And so Peter's writing this letter of encouragement almost to remind them of who they are and what they should be doing. Listen to this. As you come to him, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also... Like living stones are built, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Just a quick pause. The cornerstone in the building would have been that one first stone that they placed as a foundation to shape the whole direction of the edifice. This idea of cornerstone was, was huge. Uh, quick story, when I, when I went to Israel, man, I got to see, like, the carpenters, as I knew it, I thought carpenters only worked with wood, but carpenters also mainly at that time worked with stone because everything is stone there. It's beautiful, but everything is stone. There's still first century stones that exist. And there were edifices that had uh, these chief cornerstones standing out, and they would be so important. What Peter is doing is he's talking about Jesus as this chief cornerstone, this, this foundational thing that should shape everything else. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Community is too important to misunderstand. See, the way it was designed, God designed it from the beginning. Think about this. The Bible says in Genesis, it says that on the fifth day in the creation story, uh, God says, let us make man and woman, let us make man, people, in our image and our likeness. 
It speaks to this communal nature of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In essence, God is a community in and of himself. And therefore, when the Bible is talking about Christians, the Bible is not talking about individual people. It's talking about you all, all of us. See, our paradigm sometimes is God wants to make us a better us, make us more, I mean, uh, God wants to make me a nicer me or a better me. But the truth is, God wants to make us a better us, a more complete us. The language in the Bible is often communal. Community is too important to misunderstand. Here's what I want to drive the rest of our conversation this morning. This statement right here. Community is formed. It's not made. I'm going to say that again. Community is formed. It's not made. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about like uh, pancakes. I don't know why, but I was thinking about pancakes and when, you pour, when, when I've tried to make pancakes, my wife makes really good pancakes, but my pops, he was the pancake connoisseur. He used to make pancakes really good. But when I tried to make pancakes and I poured it, the batter would like drip all over the place and the form of the pancake would be not that good. The form took whatever shape, like I couldn't figure out how to really form it. But what I love about the Bible is the Bible helps us see that you and I, in and of ourselves, we, we take all of these different forms, but God is picturing us as this formed people group. He's building us like a spiritual house because we have a specific purpose to exist that way. Just like the pancake when it's nice and round, right? It has a real purpose to exist that way. Community is too important to misunderstand, and community is formed. It's not made. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, a theologian and a pastor, a German theologian, says this, community is a byproduct. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Community is formed. It's not made. There's something, there's some essential ingredients in the middle of really dope community that then community gets formed around it and then it exists as this powerful organism. Community is a byproduct. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. And here it is. I think, I believe, and our scripture this morning, and we're going to unpack it a little bit more, our scripture this morning tells us that really true, true community, true community is not made, it's formed around these two true essentials, these two true elements, shared identity and shared mission. If you think about any community, you think about the AA groups, you think about sororities and fraternities, you think about uh, like communities that we don't want to think about, like ISIS, they all, all of those communities share an identity and have a shared mission that they're working towards. 
And the challenge for those of us, I want to speak to the Christians in the room a little bit. The challenge for us is we've lost sight of our shared identity at times. And we've lost sight of the mission that we're supposed to have at hand. And ultimately, think about it, guys. It's not, we don't have to go far. People are running away from the community of God. People don't see it as a place to come to. They're like, if I could go anywhere else but there. My wife tells me all the time when she was growing up, the one thing she hated was the church folks. She's like, nah, I can't do that. And she went in the opposite direction, but the Lord knew. He was, he was chasing her. But as believers, sometimes we lose sight of the shared identity and the mission we're supposed to have. If you remove those things, if you remove either or both of those things, you just have a bunch of people standing around being a social club. Here's why I'm preaching this. I refuse Renaissance to let us be a community that's reduced to a social club. We can't have the people of Harlem looking at us saying like, yo, those are the people who just do brunch on Sunday. Those are the people who just maybe sing a little bit together, get excited, come back out and look exactly the same. My encouragement is that we allow this passage to reinforce and remind us of our shared identity and our shared mission. (laughs) Um, Jordan put me onto this article that I, I got a chance to read, and it's, it's written in the, in the Atlantic by a woman named Faith Hill. And in this article, she talks about a woman who in her 40s decided to step away from faith. She's like, I'm done with God and this whole Christian stuff. But she desired community. <laughs> so what she found was that there were a group of people who decided to plant churches but take God out of it. I mean, that's an emoji right there. How do you do that? How do you start a church and you take God out of it? But literally, they tried to reverse engineer the whole idea of religious assembly, basically. They called it the Sunday assemblies. And what they did was they put on a big show. They got people to volunteer. They had all types of people um, who were all types of talks, all type of motivational things, self-help things, and they had uh, people singing songs, living on a prayer, right? Um, They had all of this happening, and they bubbled up to being about, y'all know what living on a prayer is, right? The Bon Jovi joint? All right, some of y'all looked at me, y'all, you begin to know your music, man. (laughs) But these things bubbled up, and they were like hundreds all across the country. These Sunday assemblies, they were sprouting up everywhere. The article says it started in 2013. By 2016, most of them had fizzled out. People were unwilling to sacrifice their Sundays. They were unwilling to put the work in, the type of work that it takes to have a Sunday assembly actually happen. They were like, yo, it's too much work to find speakers. It's too much work to get these songs and the chairs prepared and all that. I'm not doing that. You know why? Because there was no shared identity and there was no shared mission. The people who attended these things even didn't agree on why they were attending. 
Some of them were like, well, I'm a complete atheist. I don't believe in God at all. And some people were, well, I mean, it got to be something, but I just don't like the church stuff. They didn't even have a shared identity, let alone why are you meeting just to be a social club? At the ultimate end, they lost. There was no shared identity and shared mission. Therefore, that community imploded. Again, Renaissance, I refuse for us to be a community that implodes because we are not going to lose our identity or our mission. And 1 Peter helps us do that. Let me go back to the text. It says this in verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. And I want to highlight verse 5 here because I want to unpack our identity. I want to show you how in this text, Peter is reminding you and I of our identity of who we are. It says this, it says, you also. What Peter is doing here is he's taking this New Testament, these, the New Testament group of believers, and he's comparing them to the Old Testament group of believers. And he's saying, you Just like those back then who started with Abraham, who were told that I am going to be, by God, God said to them, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. You are going to be those who I never leave nor forsake. Peter is saying now, and those were the Jewish, the first Jewish community, Peter is now saying those who are Jews and non-Jews, you also have the same privileges as them. You also are being told that you are a special possession. You are created for God. God had you in mind when he was thinking about community. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. See, Peter's reminding us that, yo, we are being built in the capitalist world, that capitalistic world that we live in, in the world of capitalism, there are self-made millionaires. In the kingdom of God, there are no self-made Christians. There's only those who have been rescued. And I love how Peter is using the, the gospel here to remind us of our identity. Go down to verse 9 with me. It says, but you are chosen. Yo, it's so dope to be chosen. I remember being in middle school and the, when the dodgeball game came out, yo, I wanted to be chosen. I never wanted to be the last person or the person the teacher had to say, okay, you go on that team. And shout out to anybody who was. I'm just saying. I never wanted that. It felt so good to be chosen. And for the the Christian, those who have put our trust and our faith in Jesus, the first thing that I want you to be reminded of with this text is that you have been chosen. And you know what's ill? God knows all about you. Even the stuff about you that you don't like, God still chose you. Even the stuff that you think he should have carved away and got right before you came to him, he said, you know what, nah, chill, I'm taking all of that. I remember the moment when I sat 
and, and saw my sin. I saw how uh, separated I was from God because the whole time I had been thinking that I wasn't that bad. I had been comparing myself to my dudes, my boys, who were doing badder things. But in actuality, I was just as bad in my own way, in the way that was bad for me. And we all had the same story. We were broken and separated from God in need to be rescued. Peter is reminding you and I that our identity is found in the fact that we're chosen people. Then he says, you are a royal priesthood. You know why this is ill? Because in the Old Testament, they had priests who used to stand in between God and the people. And the priests would do all the things necessary to make sure the sacrifices and everything needed to please God happened because the priest orchestrated and he talked to the people on God's behalf. And now what Peter is saying is, peep, yo, you are now being coming. You are a royal priesthood. You now are like that priest. The access that that priest had to God back in the day, you now have that exact same access. You are a royal priesthood because you've been chosen. So now because of Jesus, the access that was given to seemingly the spiritual elite has been given to everybody, including the non-Jew. How amazing. We can't fathom how amazing it was for a Gentile at that time to hear the reality that they have now been included in the family of God. Man, let that sink in just for a little bit. Peter says, you are, you are a holy nation. Now the government that you live by is not the Roman government. It's the kingdom of God. He says, you are God's special possession. Listen, I have some special possessions. My son, my sons, both of them are my special possession. My daughter's on my special possession, a pair of sneakers that I have. I mean, I know. I didn't mean to make that comparison so quick, but I have some special possessions. I know what those special possessions feel like to me. Multiply that by thousands and millions or whatever we can multiply it by, and we begin to understand what it's like to be God's special possession. Just think about that. You were the picture in his mind when his breathing stopped. That touches me. On days when I feel like I ain't got it, on days when I'm trying to pray and I'm trying to confess and, and tell Lord God, yo, I'm, I'm sorry for all the things I do. Sometimes scriptures like this remind me, yo, stop talking like you, uh, you're not part of the family. Stop praying about all the bad things you've done. Yo, you better come to the table like you're my son. And I'm reminded that I'm God's special possession. And this morning, I hope Peter is also reminding you, those of us who put our faith and our trust in Jesus, I hope Peter's reminding you that you are God's special possession. And I love this. God's special possession. Go down to verse 10. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Yo, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, as you guys know, and, and I had a disciplinary, disciplinarian or dis- a mother who was my disciplinarian. <laughs> right? I try to phrase that, you know, in case she hears this. She know. But my moms would make sure I was disciplined for the things that I did. And I remember times like, man, do I, do I tell the truth? Do I go home and try to lie and get myself out of it? And depending on what it was, I knew there were times I was like, yo, I don't want to get caught up. I don't want to get caught in her discipline. But most of the time, I was caught and I had to face the music, as they say. And I remember the times my dad would come in and he would say, Bridget, let me talk to him. Let me, let, let, me, let me talk to him just a little bit, and then we'll go from there. And I don't know if you have been in that situation, but the way that I felt, the mercy that I saw in that moment, commissioned by my dad, stays with me to this day, where there was a punishment I rightly deserved I did something that I shouldn't have done. And she was rightly going to correct me for it. But my dad would slide in and say, let me talk to him. Do you know what it feels like to receive mercy? When you receive mercy, things change. Paul says, uh, you, we're, we become new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the old is gone, the new has come. We have become new creatures. We are now people who have received mercy. That is your identity. When you think about community, please don't miss the reality that the Christian community shares this identity that we are people who have received mercy, and that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. And I want to unpack the second thing, mission. And I love this passage because it helps us unpack mission as well. I want to go back to verse 9. It says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now listen to this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, it's now that new identity that gives you this, this kind of muster to go look the broken world in its face and say, hey, yo, I have found mercy. You want some? See, our mission as those who have our identity in Christ is to now go and further the kingdom. I love it how the psalmist says this. uh, We want people to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's one of my favorite passages because I'm going to ask you, what are your friends tasting? What are your relatives, your coworkers, what are they tasting? Are they tasting someone who's trying to really work for their identity by doing enough on the job or trying to get a number in their bank account or trying to be uh, uh, fly or dress a certain way? 
Or are they tasting and seeing that the Lord is good because you know your identity and now it's out of your identity that you have this passion to tell others about the kingdom of God. Here's the truth. We are about to start community groups. And here's the paradigm that I want you to have. The paradigm that I want you to have is that you're not going just to extract. You're not just going to get. You're going to be reminded that I am a person who have received mercy, and my job, my mission is to tell others where they can find it. I want that to be the core of why you engage in community, because it's that that's going to keep you long-lasting. It's that that's going to keep you committed. It's that that's going to keep you showing up. It's that that's going to keep you working through all the, the nuances of working with broken people. It's that right there that's going to help keep you, that you're being reminded of your shared identity and your shared mission. No dope community can exist without it. If you really want community, you need to be reminded on a consistent basis that your identity is found in Jesus and your mission is to introduce as many people as you can to him and to him alone. But here's a note. Identity and mission are like finding your keys. You're going to lose them you're going to find him again. You're going to lose him. My poor wife. You're going to lose him. You're going to find him again. Identity and mission, it's, it's not a silver bullet. You don't just find it one time and one time for all, which is why you grow in community. Because when you come to community, you are reminded of your shared identity and your shared mission. And that's what I hope we are focused on. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. God, thank you for the truth that we are people who have received mercy, and you want us to tell others about the mercy that they can receive. Like Peter says in his letter, as you come to him, God, would we have more and more people broken, desperate, in need of being rescued, coming to you. Because we know our identity and we're on our shared mission together. In Jesus' name, amen.